And happy President's Day to you. Hopefully you got the day off and are tuning in just out of habit. And uh, if so, uh, we'll carry the disclaimer that the most responsible member of our Troika, not here today. <laughs> That's right. Jamie has the day off. And so uh, we will uh, be uh, still uh, riding without our, our favorite shotgun rider here. Uh, meantime, big news coming out of the Biden administration. We know that they have been consistently moving the goalposts on green energy. Mm-hmm. This time they're moving them in a different direction. We know that union leaders, quietly automakers, and most notably auto dealers mm-hmm. have been saying, Mr. Biden, you got to slow your slow roll on this EV transition uh, that we just can't meet the deadline set forth. And of course, the the Biden administration says, well, there's no EV mandate. Well, when you set out a uh, a goal that 65% of sales must be EVs by 2030, mm-hmm. with all of them being, you know, by 20, that's a mandate. That means that, you know, you're not going to be able to sell anything but, but EVs. Well, there is a new proposed change uh, to the EPA guidelines that would delay those requirements until after 2030. 30 to give the infrastructure more time to build out. And so uh, perhaps this morning, for those of you in the auto industry, and we're going to be talking with Keith Naughton a little bit later on at 649 about this, but I think there's a double-edged sword here. When you've invested billions of dollars into EVs, you want to be able to get those uh, investments to pay dividends. Yeah. Right? Yeah, because they've been losing. Yeah, like five, I think, was it Ford said five billion in their their E uh, division? Yeah. so, I mean, you know, you would like some help to sell those EVs, uh, but this at least gives them some breathing time. And most importantly, that you're giving the consumer time to get used to the idea. And getting over the anxiety of infrastructure and all of that. You're right. And, you know, there's not, we, we'll get into the, the Trump rally yeah. uh, Saturday night was uh, very predictable. Uh, it was an hour and, I think, 20 minutes. The first 45 minutes was basically rehashed for the next 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, he did he did a lot of that. Uh, but he brought up a lot of stuff about the automotive industry and, and certainly gives voice to a lot of the concerns that consumers have about EVs that they perceive can't get them where they need to go, at least not as often as they'd like. Look, the range on EVs right now, pretty good, more than 300 miles, um, which for 90% of your trips probably is, is going to be just fine. It's those long trips with your family, especially if there's cold right. weather and you're hauling something. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so, but, you know, you know, Mr. Biden, and Mr. Trump, rather, doesn't, you know, like anything that's nuanced. So he just says, they don't go very far. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Like they go 20 miles. And yeah, like they, they're, they're, they're crapping out on crap the side out. of the road. But, um, but nevertheless, he's using it. It is a potent campaign weapon. For his base, and I think for consumers at large, they're very nervous about this transition. Well, the Biden administration is now appears to be uh, buckling under some of those pressures. We'll await to see exactly what this is. And again, we'll talk to Keith coming up at 649 about how this is being perceived within the industry. Meantime, there's no power like grandma power. Like grandma. Let me tell you, a hookah shop in Detroit has been shut down by police for allegedly selling marijuana even to minors. Without a license, the crackdown came after a grandmother discovered her 15-year-old grandson had purchased weed from the establishment. Now, taking action into her own hands, Vivian Miles Jackson recorded her grandson's transaction and then alerted police. Detroit Police Vice Enforcement, they launched an investigation uncovering 11,000 grams of marijuana. It feels like a trash bag. Uh, The principal of Pershing High School, which is right across the street, from the Detroit hookah, 
His name is uh, Brian Tipton, the principal there. He was happy. He said it's Christmas. Our kids deserve more. Our kids don't deserve to be poisoned. You know, again, they wouldn't do this out in the suburbs, but they come here on 7 Mile and Ryan and think they can get away with it. The shop's owner received multiple tickets before authorities closed the business on Friday. Police now reviewing evidence to determine charges. Detroit Hookah, they own another store right down the street on 7 Mile, but police say we're going to be keeping an eye on that. Don't keep an eye on it. They've got a license to sell there. Jerk the license. They violated the the contract. Yeah, basically, yeah, because they they don't have a license to sell uh, marijuana. It's yeah. a hookah place. Look, if you're be- yeah, if you're behaving badly and you're being a bad uh, a bad business, I'm sure there are other ways that they could probably uh, yeah shut them down. But you know, what? I love the fact that it's like Grandma went full Inside Edition on them. She <laughs> she, she brought in the camera cheaters. I mean, I mean, Karen Drew must be going good on you, Grandma. That's <laughs> I'm some, telling that's, you. That's some serious investigative chops and there. paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, with her grandson. This that's the kind of community. That's old school, man. Now I got to ask you a question about this. In in um, in Kansas City, we got the mayor upset with the governor because of a word that he used to describe the shooters that disrupted and murdered a woman during the celebration for Mm -hmm. the Super Bowl. Um, Let's discuss the story here. Uh, In a heated exchange, uh, Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas accused Missouri Governor Mike Parson, not our Mike Parson, Mike Parson, of employing racial undertones by referring to the suspected shooters at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl parade as thugs. Lucas made the accusation during a radio appearance, denouncing the term as a dog whistle for racism. While acknowledging a respectful relationship with the governor, Lucas strongly disagreed with Parsons' choice of words, asserting that labeling the situation as criminal activity was appropriate, but condemning the use of the word thugs. So this weekend, if your ears were tuned, do you know what the most frequent word, the most frequently used, when when the thug was used, in what context it was used? Most frequently? Describing Vladimir Putin. Nikki Haley went off on Donald Trump all weekend long, yeah. describing Putin as a thug. Since when did that become a racially loaded word? Yeah, I, you know, to me, it's always been an action word. If you act like a thug, you're a thug. It wasn't based on the color of your skin. It was based on your, your action. Your behavior. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's an equal opportunity description. Equal opportunity. And so I I don't get it. And and. What, Show me where the upside is in defending, which is what you're kind of doing, the thugs. The thugs, because they were thugs. Who, they were. Who, yeah. I'm sorry. They I mean, were. Dudes they acted like them and spinning. And spinning and, with a big gun, yeah. shooting a bunch of people and kids. That's, yeah. I'm That's sorry. Thuggish, it is. thuggish it is. behavior. Um, President Trump was in town Saturday night, 2,000 people uh, cramming into the, the hangar there, according to fire marshals. That's a heck of a crowd, especially when you consider that it was mighty cold outside and they had to spend some time out there. A bunch of them turned it into a, a pretty good party, I guess. It's a little bit like tailgating. Uh, make no mistake, <laughs> there is, in the minds of Donald Trump, in the minds of the Republican leadership nationally, there is only one chairman in the state, and it isn't Christina Caramo. Your new Michigan Republican Party chairman, former congressman, Pete Hoekstra. I actually recommended him. I said, you think you can ever get this guy Hoekstra? He's unbelievable. And you were willing to do it, and I appreciate it. Everybody appreciates it. We're going to win the state. If we win Michigan, we win the election. Uh, really endorsing. And, and he's right. Yeah. Um, I think Michigan, you know, they, Debbie Dingle was on Channel 4 earlier this week and said, you know, it comes down to Nevada. 
and Michigan is the two new, now really big battleground states, and Nevada really doesn't have that many electoral votes. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting about that, and Hoekstra's been uh, quoted elsewhere, John Osting over a bridge doing a lot of we we're going to have competing state conventions. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and Pete's may be over in Grand Rapids, mm-hmm. the RNC. You know, you may have two again, two different slates of delegates. Which 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 group do you think the RNC is going to accept? So Christina Caramo can have her own convention, right? But she's delusional if she thinks that her delegates were get seated at the Republican National Convention. All you are is creating drama and creating more discord in a party that needs to start singing out of the same hymnal. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but uh, Pete Hookstra. Um, and I, he pronounces it Hookstra. He says Hookstra. Hookstra. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah. So, and, and and Mr. Trump saying, you know, M- Michigan is is going to be the battleground. We'll talk a little bit later on about uh, his uh, his auto policies. He's talking tariffs again. Which, if you've got a Toyota dealership, Honda dealership, Mercedes, BMW, uh, you may want to pay close attention to what he is talking about. It wasn't a hard and fast, but he's, he's just kind of just watch me. You remember, and he did that. I think it was a 25% tariff that he talked about putting right. on European cars. He was talked out of it. You know, the question is, with a, with a new administration, whether he would be uh, talked out of and it. And 6,500 uh, voters participated Saturday in er- the first day of early voting. and But only a couple hundred in Detroit. I only, mean, Yeah. We still have time until uh, the 25th. Uh, so we have nine nine days of early voting, but take advantage. But it's nice. You know, it's in G- person. Gail and I were going to go on Saturday. We ended up distracted with some yeah. things for the grandkids and didn't get there. But we're going to certainly do it probably this week. Sure, me too. Because um, mm-hmm. it, it it's convenient. Very interesting. At that rally, you didn't hear uh, Donald Trump from the podium denigrate early voting. In fact, there were posters up telling people to vote oh. early. Remember, he still will go off on mail-in ballots. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what those are in Michigan. We really don't have mail-in voting. We have absentee voting like we've always had. Right. But and and it will be diminished quite a bit by this early voting. Sixty-five hundred people voting early. Those are people that won't be voting by absentee. AD, right. right. Mm-hmm. So uh, much more to come on JR Morning. We'll always, uh, as we always do, we're going to check in with our friends at Cranes Detroit Business. Lots of interesting stories popping there. It's all ahead. As we continue at 616, that's coming up at 619 on JR. Well, on your Monday morning, we love to check in with our friends at Crane's Detroit Business. Lots of important stories happening there. And we welcome in Mike Lee, the managing editor of CDB this morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Guy. How are you? Excellent. Your forum um, takes on so many interesting topics. And this one, obviously, for Lloyd and I, um, hits very close to home. And that's the local journalism is in a shrinking mode, but it's also evolving and adapting. Yes, this is, uh, you know, the, the, the broad outlines of this are probably not surprising to a lot of people. The, uh, the, the local local journalism, it, it, really exemplified by local newspapers, um, has been in shrinking mode for 15 years. Um, to quantify that, uh, according to Northwestern University, a quarter of the papers in Michigan have stopped publishing in, in the last 15 years. Uh, almost 60% of the the jobs in journalism have uh, have disappeared, um, you know, and then it's that way all the way around the country. That means there are a whole lot of local governments, local city councils, school boards, police commissions that have uh, really nobody watching, watching what they're doing and how they carry out their business and their public meetings, uh, which is is really a uh, a recipe for for corruption. Um, one of the things that you've seen uh, happen in reaction to this. Uh, Philanthropy and foundations have supported 
uh, new nonprofit newsrooms like our friends at Bridge Michigan and Bridge Detroit. Uh, and, and, and some of some of those operations are trying out uh, really new models for, for journalism. Uh, one that really fascinates me is uh, Outlier Media in Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, a new nonprofit, newish nonprofit, not that new, but um, they have a program called Detroit Documenters, which uh, recruits and trains people to, to attend public meetings, uh, report on them. They essentially report on them on, on X on Twitter. Um, and, and what that does, that, that fulfills a few functions. One of the important ones being those public officials at those meetings know that someone is watching them and telling the world what they're doing. Uh, those those uh, reports from those meetings also serve as tip sheets for bigger for bigger uh, for bigger media operations like yours and mine. Yeah. Uh, when when a story of a broad general interest does pop up at some obscure public meeting in Detroit, uh, someone is getting that word out, and 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 that that story can be elevated if need be. And I got to tell you, some of the best writing I've seen in the past couple of years has come to to me from Downtown News Magazine, which covers Birmingham Bloomfield. Lisa Brody, David Hohendorf. Do a great job there, and man, they tackle some some deep stuff. So heavy heavy duty heavy duty journalism there, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Mike, uh, and you know there are cities that are you know allowing uh, marijuana uh, facilities in their cities and, and the licensing of it. But what's going on in Harper Woods? It's uh, it's a little different there. We yeah we 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 dug into uh, the 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 licensing process for 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 legal weed in Harper Woods, which is is has been going through that process lately, and uh, they uh, they they took applications. Most most cities you know, create some kind of competitive process where where the would be uh, uh, marijuana businesses you know submit all their financials and they 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 weight those the various factors and decide who would who would make the best applicants. Uh, some cities have, have skipped that and went with a first-to-file system, you know, basically first-come, first-served, um, get their licenses considered. Uh, and that's what Harper Woods did. But they, they went one further and, and, and refused to let people line up at the, at, the, uh, at the city hall before the appointed time and, and only allowed them to park in a, in a parking lot a ways away uh, a half an hour before they were supposed to accept the application materials from, from the companies. What that meant is it turned into a foot race, and the companies that were applying knew that that was going to be the case. Uh, we have video of the foot race. Uh, one guy got knocked down uh, in the parking lot, and it was kind of a, a wild scene. Mm. And really, the first three first three companies that got to the door, they had spots on the sidewalk, according to attendees, um, were, were going to have their application materials reviewed first, uh, essentially, uh, you know, giving them a, an advantage in that. It's really, I mean, it's it. What it illustrates, I mean, it's it's one city, but what it illustrates is 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 how Michigan's uh, marijuana licensing scheme gave an awful lot of leeway to uh, to cities and townships in deciding how they were going to to make these rules. And this is almost certainly going to wind up in a in a in a court fight. Court, it sounds yeah. like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. a bunch of the uh, the applicants have said they're going to sue that this doesn't follow the uh, the state's rules for a competitive. 
a competitive bidding process, even though I suppose a foot race is, is, is competitive. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how this turns out. It's uh, it's a kind of an interesting situation. A cannabis foot race just sounds like it would be something fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not, not always in a straight line. Um, world's, world's slowest foot race. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Especially if they go by the Dorito counter. Um, <laughs> Got to ask you about this, uh, the breaking news uh, that, that started yesterday evening that the Biden administration is talking about maybe moving the goalposts when it comes to their EV mandate. Uh, they don't recognize it as that, but that's really what it is. Um, that's that's going to have be resonating throughout the supplier community and through automakers today. Uh, we know that David Dow, for instance, over at American Axle will probably be feeling pretty good about it. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I mean, we've seen over and over recently that the uh, the EV EV transition is is not going as as quickly as some had hoped. Uh, we saw that in uh, in in American Axles earnings report last week. Uh, David Dauk, or excuse me, David Dauk, uh, you know, basically said if there's a delay in EV programs, that's good for our business. Uh, you know, the, these giant auto suppliers that 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 make the many many parts that go into a, an internal combustion right. engine vehicle. Um, you know, they're, they're, that that transition is, is going to be tough on them, and they know it. Um, so, so the, the the slowdown in 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 demand and in any slowdown in uh, in in the requirements that the federal government is is putting on the automakers would will be will be good for them, if only because it buys them buys them time to to make that transition. Um, EVs EVs have fewer parts than a than, than a gas powered engine, so there there's going to be few, less business overall. I think uh, you know much of the much of the, uh, the, the the spending on parts for an EV is in the battery, and the, and the company, the automakers themselves, are trying to control that supply chain. Right. So it's uh, you know that the, the whole uh, auto supply ecosystem is uh, definitely could yeah, will be pleased to uh, to see the uh, to to see any slowdown in the in that transition. You've also got a story uh, that we don't have time to really dive into, but that uh, Governor Whitmer's. Uh, plan to use pension money to fund community college and pre-k uh, may be headed for a rough uh, bit of sledding up in Lansing, and that's a story I know you guys will be all over in the coming week. Mike Lee, thanks very much. Very good, thank you, guy. All right, when we come back, uh, right to work uh, as of last week is officially dead. Prevailing wage back again. What does that mean for Michigan businesses? Next. A uh, story that didn't get a lot of attention over the weekend, but I think it's something we got to keep our eye on, is that uh, we know that after the Senate bipartisan plan was voted down on you know, getting U- aid to Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel uh, in return for greater border security, uh, the, the problem solvers, which is an interesting group in the Congress. I mean, it's, it's folks that kind of tend towards the middle, but there are also people willing to reach across the aisle. Elizabeth, uh, uh, Alyssa Slotkin, uh, Debbie Dingell. I believe on the right, uh, we've got John James, which is now yep. members mm-hmm. of, of the Problem Solvers Caucus. So this is what they've come up with. Remain in Mexico is reinstated. Title 42 is reinstated, not as a pandemic measure, but as a border control emergency measure. When you're given the, you know, the two million that have come over, I think you can, it qualifies as an emergency. And then also label Russia as a, a sponsor of state terrorism. After the uh, the Navalny, yeah, the death. Navalny deal, yeah, 
And um, this is one of those things that's being floated out there. Uh, Lindsey Graham was on uh, the uh, Meet, Meet the Press and said this. I see a pathway forward now for Ukraine, Taiwan, and, and uh, Israel. I see a way to secure our border in a more simple fashion. Let's make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. All of this can happen in the next 30 days. It would be a game changer for the world. So uh, we'll see what happens. He was asked by Kristen Welker, have you talked to Pre- President Trump about it? Uh-huh. Said, no, but the, the the Russian thing was his idea. Uh, so we'll see. President Trump did not mention it from the rally stage on Saturday night. Not a mention about this or Navalny. Talked a lot about the border, but not the solution mm-hmm. to the border. Uh as I said, last week we saw so many laws taking effect. One of the ones that did not have immediate effect that, was, that, uh, that happened last week was the end of a decade of right-to-work laws here in the state of Michigan. What does that mean for business going forward? It was certainly a Democratic uh, payback to organized labor, which has been against it for years. We welcome Sandy Barua, President and CEO of the Detroit Regional Chamber. Sandy, good morning. Good morning, Guy. You guys on your website uh, did a very nice white paper, I think, on this and and laying out your perspective that this and it's I mean, you you warned of this back in March when it was passed. But this weakens our competitive position. How much does it weaken it? Well, you know, it's hard to quantify because we often don't know what kind of business we don't get in Michigan uh, because of this you know, change in the law. So there's certain things that uh, are kind of more quantifiable. One, businesses hate uncertainty. And you know, we have in Michigan something that, that we call the, the Michigan Policy 180. We do something for a while, then we kind of dramatically shift courses. And right to work is yet another example of something that we had done, as you mentioned, a decade ago, and now we're not doing it anymore. And businesses hate that kind of, you know, uh, veering around the freeway uh, uh, unpredictability. Um, uh, saying that, you know, some argue that the right to work law had positive effects on economic growth, particularly in certain sectors like manufacturing. Is that valid? And w- what might be the broader implications of repealing the law? Yeah, Lloyd, we we don't buy that argument. So first of all, any state, and we have lots of examples that have enacted right to work. And every time that happens, the number of existing union shops that cease to be union shops is incredibly minimal. So it's not like when a state moves to enact right to work, all of these union shops all of a sudden become uh, non-union shops. That, 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 that just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And certainly you can see in Michigan a decade ago when we did this, we did not see all of these union shops all of a sudden become uh, un-union shops, right? So the union shops that were union shops will continue to be and did continue to be union shops. So uh, the real advantage in having a right-to-work law is the message that it sends to prospective employers in Michigan. One of the things that was inexplicable about this was when it was being debated, when there were hearings on it, um, our our friends and allies up at the Michigan Chamber were not allowed to testify. 
In fact, those that were against uh, repealing right to work, I think there was only one guy from the southern border of Michigan, a county economic official that was allowed to speak. And one of the things that he raised, Sandy, is very interesting. He said, if we can't sell ourselves as a right to work state, it means we're going to have to shower businesses with incentives of another variety to to cancel the, the cost competitiveness problem. How much of this will raise the cost of of drawing businesses here? Yeah, I mean, you know, ideally what everybody wants, you know, I don't care if you're a conservative or you're a liberal, what everyone wants is a business environment where we don't have to write checks, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the way we write checks in Michigan, for the most part, I think is actually pretty smart. We just don't write a blank check. What we do is say, listen, if you bring in X number of jobs and those jobs actually meet some standards in terms of how much they pay and those jobs actually materialize, then we'll give you some future tax breaks, right? And so basically that is kind of a low cost, if not a no cost way of, of attracting jobs. But, you know, but it, that's kind of hard to explain. So why do that when you can just have a business environment where people say, oh, Michigan is a good place to do business because, one, I have predictability, and that predictability is that I'm going to have a reasonable cost of doing business. And, Sandy, you know, when you look ahead, what do you believe will be the key factors shaping the success uh, or even the challenges uh, of, of Michigan's the, the post-right-to-work era? And, I mean, and I'm talking about for workers and businesses alike. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I think what you guys were just talking about, Lloyd, about having to, you know, have, you know, different or more incentive programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there isn't an appetite on either side of the aisle to do more of those. But, you know, if we're going to continue to attract businesses here, uh, you know, we might have to do do more of that. Uh, we have to spend more uh, on, say, infrastructure. Uh, which is something we need to do kind of anyway. So, but maybe we have to do more of that to entice businesses to say, listen, you know, we'll build a road for you or we'll build, you know, we'll ensure that your underground utilities are, are taken care of and things like that. I mean, that's something that has long-term economic impact uh, benefit anyway. Um, so it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to tell. Uh, but again, this whole idea of the Michigan policy 180, where we do something for a while and we just <laughs> change our minds, uh, is something that we've got to get over in this state. Whiplash, never a comfortable <laughs> thing. Uh, finally, before we let you go, uh, the Biden administration in the last uh, 12, 18 hours has said that uh, that it is undertaking some regulatory changes that would basically move the goalposts on green energy and EV, Sandy, that it's going to give automakers, dealers, and most importantly, consumers more time to get comfortable with the EV transition. Welcome news to automakers. Um, so again, this is kind of another version of a policy 180, just just at just at the federal level. So, um, you know, we're seeing dealers now advocating for exactly what's happening. We haven't really seen the manufacturers jump on board yet. Uh, One, because the manufacturers, unlike the dealers, have to have these investments in place years and years in advance. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see the, the impact of when there's a dramatic shift in, uh, in, in consumer behavior that you know, the manufacturers just can't 
you know, a flip on a dime because, I mean, you know, the tooling, the manufacturing, the planning, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, it, it, it's just it's just enormous. Well, right? they've already got sunk costs, right? Now they're, they're waiting exactly. for the return on those things, and they could certainly use maybe a little help. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Sandy, we thank you so much, and uh, have a great week. You guys have a great week as well. All right. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation about the Biden environmental changes with Keith Naughton. Bloomberg automotive reporter and also ask this question just because the Biden administration does it will California follow next on JR morning well there's been a buzz about the Biden administration's plans to tweak its approach to combating climate change particularly in relation to tailpipe emissions and the push for electric vehicles it seems there is a shift in strategy with potential implications for automakers and labor unions. Let's delve into the details of this evolving situation with Keith Naughton, auto business reporter for Bloomberg, who joins us on JR Morning. Keith, good morning. Good morning, Lloyd. So what's behind this uh, Biden administration shift? Well, uh, there's a couple of things. One is market realities, that EV sales are significantly slowing down. And the other is political realities. You know, Biden is struggling here in Michigan and both the auto companies and the UAW want this EV transition to come about at a slower pace. Well, and there's a certain someone that is willing to make plenty of political hay about that, too, Keith. <laughs> a vote for Biden exactly. is a vote to send tens of thousands of Michigan jobs to China and other places that we don't want them to go. A vote for Trump is a vote to keep those manufacturing jobs in America and add a lot of jobs. This seems to be a response that that message and that uh, that narrative is, is getting traction. It absolutely is, Guy. And I interviewed Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, last summer, and he said that Trump's talking points on EVs were resonating with his members. The reality is electric vehicles require 40 percent less labor to assemble. So they do represent a threat to jobs uh, that auto companies are building Uh, battery plants and new electric vehicle assembly plants in the south and right-to-work states that have been hostile to unions. That's why the UAW withheld its endorsement of Biden for so long. They wanted to see some change in his EV policies and uh, slow down in his EV mandates, and that appears to be what we're seeing now. And, and, you know, when you talk about the political landscape, how do you see the president kind of navigating that tension between combating the climate change, maintaining the political support, and then addressing the concerns from the auto industry and, and, and labor. Yeah, unions. because the green lobby is not happy. <laughs> you know they're not. No, it is a real tightrope that he's walking here. Uh, but he needs Michigan. And Michigan, you know, the most recent polls are showing that Michigan is leaning to Trump this time around. So uh, he needs those auto workers to line up behind him. Uh, he needs the auto companies to support him. So he is making this move. He will take flack. He already is taking flack on the on the green side. And, you know, he's making a calculus on the importance of this state to his reelection. How worried are manufacturers that this could be a bait and switch, that as soon as the election's over, if Biden's reelected, he could pull the rug out from under them? And just because the Biden administration is willing to move the goalpost and give them a little bit more room, it doesn't mean that California and the, what, seven or eight states eight. that mm-hmm. follow them Uh, are going to do that. That's for sure. So these regulations are are proposed by the EPA. They will be hardened 
in the spring. So it will be harder to change them as long as Biden is in office. Of course, Trump has said on his first day in office, he'll wipe away these regulations. So there will be some certainty around them once uh, they are um, formalized in March. But, um, but you know, it's, it is a very delicate issue. The idea of bait and switch, they're not saying they're like wiping these away. They're just changing the pace of them. Previously, right. the proposal was you would speed up the EV mandates in this decade. Now they're saying they would push it past 2030. But what about the, the issue of California and the, and the states that follow their environmental lead? Yeah, so they, they are very unlikely to, to weaken their regulations. But John Lawler, Ford CFO, was just on Bloomberg TV this week saying that F-150 sales in California and the western states in general in general, are about half electrified between hybrids and pure electrics. You know, gas is $5 a gallon out there. So EVs are an easier sell in California. So meeting those mandates, while they'll still be a stretch, are easier in California than they would be, particularly in the middle of the country. Yeah, but even UC Berkeley did a survey and found that 75, only 25% of the chargers in California aren't working. <laughs> exactly right. And that's a huge problem. There's only about 170,000 chargers out there in America. And to meet these mandates, you would need more than 2 million, the experts say. And, and how crucial is the role of, of the federal tax credits uh, and the availability, as we talked about, the charging infrastructure and driving consumers to EVs? Yeah, the tax credits are very important. You, you might have seen the Mustang Mach-E lost its tax credits uh, under the new regulations, and its sales fell by more than 50% in January. So the tax credits are a big thing to get consumer adoption going. But on the other hand, there are these new rules requiring you know, that the vehicles be made in North America, that they not have you know, uh, parts and minerals that come from uh, – uh, countries that we don't have free trade agreements with. So so they're trying to resolve some of the labor issues along with the market dynamic issues, and sometimes they're at cross-currents. Keith, I want you to help me fact-check something that the former president said at his rally in Waterford Saturday night. He he was he was give, giving a narrative about a friend of his who he claims makes, uh, builds auto plants, uh, both in America and in Mexico. I, you know, I think he's referring to John Ricolta, quite frankly. Uh, but he uh, but he says that this friend says, well, the best plants are going to Mexico. The, the most sophisticated plants are going to Mexico. Here's what he had to say. Donald, the big plants, the big plants, the ones that you really have to see are the ones that we're building in Mexico. They're unbelievable. I said, uh, how much bigger? How much better? He said, far more advanced, double, triple the size of what's happening in the United States. Is is that accurate, Keith? There is definitely a building boom going on in Mexico for electric vehicles. Tesla itself is building a gigafactory in Mexico, and that's where their low-cost EV, their, their $25,000, what they call Model 2, yeah. will be coming from. That's like double and, the size of the one in Texas, right? Yeah, yeah it would be yeah. a very big plant. And then uh, Tesla has a, attracted all of its Chinese suppliers to come to Mexico because Mexico doesn't have the issue with the Chinese automakers and suppliers that the United States does. And that's but is this broad order. or is it mainly Tesla only? No, I think you're going to see, uh, you know, the EV market is growing in Mexico with a lot of Chinese players. I think you're going to see a lot of growth in EV infrastructure and factories in Mexico. The, the interesting part of that was that it was a bit of a contradiction. While he was talking about the best plants being built in Mexico, 
he said that his trade deal was the best trade deal ever negotiated. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think both things can you be can't true. Do both. Yeah. <laughs> Just, no, we're, we're worried about the Chinese EV makers in Mexico because of that trade deal gives them a backdoor entry into the United States. Well, it, it does, and he talked about that, but he said China is already bringing cars into America through Mexico. Mexico. Is that accurate? Uh, I, I'm not aware of that. I mean, Polestar exists in this country, and that's that's owned by the Chinese. But um, so does Volvo, and that's yeah. owned, by, owned by the Chinese as well. Yeah. All right, Keith. Thanks so much. We'll await to see the fallout with automakers and suppliers over the the uh, changing landscape for the Biden administration and the EPA. You have a great week. Thanks, Kai. And welcome to Monday. We are just 29 days away from the start of spring, Lloyd, which means that uh, they commuted our our winter sentence. (laughs) It's no longer a 30-day sentence. And uh, we're going to have some spring-like temperatures this week as well. Well, and we're witnessing one beautiful sunrise uh, over the uh, Detroit skyline. Uh, We should say, Jamie's not here, but she had a really fun weekend. Yes, she did. She went to uh, Yammer Yager's jersey was retired. She's a big Pittsburgh uh, Penguins fan, and she and her dad went there for it. And I don't know if you saw... I did see some pictures. Did you see all the Yammer Yager wigs? I sure did. I I don't know if if Jamie was sporting one of those or not. Or or dad. Uh, (laughs) But that that would have been a a fun look. Uh, But so that's why Jamie's not here today. What a great memory. What a fun thing to do with your dad. It is. Uh, Michigan lobbyists. I got to stay with it. With the Democrats taking over in Lansing, they better watch their weight <laughs> because they uh, they were the recipients of an awful lot of free food and drink uh, thanks to the lobbyists, uh, those that reported uh, getting the most, treated the most. Uh, Representative Tyrone Carter, Democrat of Detroit, disclosed spending of $4,800. Um, others include uh, Will Snyder from Muskegon. Uh, there was some Republicans in there as well. Matt Hall did pretty well, a $4,000 uh, tab that was paid by lobbyists uh, for him. And Greg Van Workham, who's west side uh, over by Muskegon Way, $4,200. Uh, bottom line is I think lobbyists spent over a half million dollars on food and drink, which I believe breaks the record. Wow. So, you know, if we start to see, uh, you know, Ozempic and <laughs> and uh, Munjaro <laughs> packages uh, flowing into the state capitol, now we understand We know why. what's up, yeah. Big time uh, scholarship. Yeah. You know, Michigan high school students, guy, they have this opportunity to win a scholarship by participating in the Kelsey's Law Distracted Driving Awareness Scholarship. Now, it's named after Kelsey Raffaele, who tragically lost her life in a cell phone related car crash. Now, this scholarship aims to combat distracted driving among teenagers and prevent accidents. Now, to enter, the student must create a persuasive message using a video, graphic or tweet focusing on convincing new drivers to reduce distractions on the road. Now, entries will be judged based on their ability to persuade others, grab attention, convey a clear message, and demonstrate creativity. The deadline for the submissions is March 31st, with four winners being selected. The top scholarship prize, $2,000, applicable to any university, college, or technical school tuition. Eligible applicants must be 11th or 12th grade students attending a public or private Michigan school with a valid Michigan driver's license. You can apply and get more information if you go to michiganautolaw.com. Nice, uh, generous program there. Yes. Now, for parents, 
they're getting a nice little gift when it comes to college scholarships from the federal government. Uh, under Secure 2.0, this was announced on Friday, didn't get a lot of attention. If you put money into a 529 Roth IRA for college for your child and your child decides not to go, mm-hmm. what do you do with that money? It's one of the big barriers to parents in investing in a Roth IRA. Well, the new rule says you can take $35,000 of that and roll it over into your individual retirement account. So the 529 account for college can turn into Roth IRA money. Oh, okay. So that's the that's the long and the short of it. And it's aimed at parents who are kind of reluctant to save in a 529 because they're saying, well, what if I have to pay taxes and a penalty uh, for withdrawing those funds if my son or daughter doesn't want to go. go to college? Yeah. So two things, gives them a break, gives their retirement a boost, mm-hmm. and also will lower the anxiety barrier to investing in a 529 in the first place. We'll see how that goes. But a nice change from the federal government. Uh, there's a gentleman that's going to need a little bit of investment help uh, because, you know, it, we'll talk about this, but these, yeah. these, these integrity um, these integrity units that look at past cases, you got to wonder if it, it's a great thing, you're righting a wrong, but do they have a fund somewhere to right. pay for all these judgments that they're going to generate? A local man wrongfully convicted of murder in Detroit, Alexander... And Sari has been awarded $10 million after a federal jury found in his favor. And Sari, who was maintaining his innocence all along throughout his ordeal, was convicted in a 2013 murder case at the age of 27. And his attorney, Wolf Muller, revealed that the uh, former Detroit Police Department detective concealed crucial evidence leading to Sari's wrongful conviction and a six-and-a-half-year prison imprisonment Asari endured immense suffering during mm. that time in prison. He grappled with depression. He lost his grandmother, who was very dear to him during that time. And according to his lawyer, the real culprit behind the murder was tied to a drug cartel leader, implicating a grave miscarriage of justice orchestrated by the detective. It was the relentless efforts of the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office Conviction Integrity Unit under the direction of Valerie Newman that ultimately led to his exoneration. The, I mean, I think these things are great. The election integrity movement is a great thing. Our good friend Bill Proctor has yes, been involved absolutely. in this for years, and mm-hmm. he's my hero. Um, but you do have to look at this and say it's a huge it's it's a huge downstream cost to it. Should we be building an infrastructure to address these injustices? Yeah, because if you're allowing these people to sue if they're wrongly convicted, the money has to come from somewhere. somewhere. That's a ten million dollar hit. I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, where insurance that... or if it's yeah. general funds or whatever. But you know, I don't know. It, it, it's uh, it's it is a big tab. Uh, People's Choice Awards last night. Um, Barbie came up huge. Uh, movie of the year. Uh, Margot Robbie won for female movie star. Ryan Gosling wins for male movie star. Uh, when it came to drama, Oppenheimer, which I saw over the weekend. Fabulous movie. How they did not give Star of the Year to Killian Murphy, I have no idea. Also, Robert Downey Jr. should get an Oscar for what he did in that movie. Um, but uh, it was all Barbie all the time. TV show of the year, an oldie but a goodie, Grey's Anatomy. Oh, wow. Celebrating its 20th year. But, I mean, beating out Ted Lasso, Only Murders in the Building, uh, Special Victims Unit, The Bear. SVU, that's my show. Yeah. Uh, The Last of Us, which was a huge success. I'm not quite sure about that. An action film star. How on earth do you beat out Tom Cruise 
or or Keanu Reeves for John mm-hmm. Wick. Right. I mean, right. freaking Cruz did a base jump in that movie. <laughs> did he hurt he, himself? He vaulted that? himself yeah. off of a cliff. Um, uh, instead, it went to Rachel Zegler for Hunger Games. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know about it, that. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll, yeah. Listen, uh, the NBA yesterday. <laughs> they wanted more competition, guy, but guess what? They got more points. I mean, I like the most points. Uh, the East, what a game. The East Conference beat the Western Conference 211 to 186. You know, that's the most points ever scored in the game's 73-year history. The previous mark, 196 by the West in 2016. No defense. It was like watching the Harlem Globetrotters. The only all-star <laughs> game more useless than that is the football all-pro fraud. <laughs> they want to be paid it for fraud? it, too. NBA All-Star said, yeah, we want to be paid for the all-star game now. Yeah. What? Wow. Yeah. It's, a, it's, 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 it's the like, Harlem Globetrotters warmed over. Yeah. And, the, yeah, and well... You know, and with the and sham- I would rather watch the house. And that's if the it. Shamrocks didn't have a heartbeat, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, or the, no, the Washington Generals. The Washington Generals. That's, excuse me. That's yeah. right. That's right. Oh, man. Uh, time for WJR Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Here is Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to take us through the latest news from the startup community. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. What accelerated rapidly during the pandemic has kept humming right along these days, and that's Americans turning to online shopping as a primary way to make their purchases. Data from a new study just released by the online marketplace Timu, conducted by Propeller Insights, has the following data relating to interesting insights to America's online shopping behavior. First, 75.2% of consumers surveyed believe that they are actually now pretty savvy at doing their online shopping. Not just that they shop online, but they are really good at it, meaning that they're comfortable, confident, and adept at navigating online shops and the key functionality to execute their shopping online. But also, they now feel really good at finding the best deals. And where are the best deals? Well, 78.4% of consumers polled said they compare prices online before purchasing products anywhere. In fact, when it comes to finding good deals, 73% believe that they get the best deals online. The other big factors are product quality and speed of delivery. 26% of consumers who shop online indicate they do it on marketplace platforms like Amazon, Etsy, or eBay, for example, versus 20% who do their shopping directly on retailers' websites, say, for example, Target or Macy's. When shopping online, 50% of U.S. shoppers do it on websites, while 48% now use shopping apps to do their shopping. Most consumers feel they're now more than secure to make their purchasing transactions online. 75% believe they are just fine and all is safe when making online purchases these days. What are we buying? Data shows the top three product categories are clothing and accessories, household items, and consumer electronics. So there you have it. little insight into how Americans are shopping online today. Risk as ever, no doubt. There goes the cash. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. From the riverfront to the train station here into the new center area, it has been a wild 10 years of investment yeah. and, and progress. 
Now, one of the most far-reaching development projects, certainly one of the most expensive ones, will come under very close scrutiny at city council. And again, we see, I think, well-meaning developers bumping up against community activists who have a different idea. Absolutely. Free Press reporting this morning that city council could decide this week on whether to approve incentives for part of a $3 billion development in the new center area that is a collaboration among Henry Ford Health, the Detroit Pistons, and the Michigan State University, and has faced some criticism at public hearings. I expect there will be more tomorrow at this uh, public hearing. The proposed development called the Future of Health encompasses six projects. It's the large expansion of Henry Ford Hospital, which includes a 21-story hospital tower. Then you'll have 662 new mixed-income apartments and a new medical research center and a parking deck. Five of those six projects are seeking the council approval tomorrow for tax breaks, or future tax captures totaling $296 million over 35 years. And the developers have said that without these requested incentives that the five projects are not financially feasible. Now, Henry Ford, they're not asking for the uh, incentives. Uh, they're a nonprofit health system. They don't pay uh, property tax as it is. It's a $2.2 billion um, project for Henry Ford. And, yeah, uh, they'll have that hearing tomorrow, and I'm sure you'll get – Folks in that hearing saying, listen, we're giving welfare to the billionaires again, and we don't need to do that. Yeah. You know, so. Well, and here it comes. I mean, it comes down to a lot of number crunching, too, right? There's a community benefits ordinance that says you have to lay out what the community benefit is. Yeah. Uh, Developers in public meetings say that there is a $604 million benefit for the close-in residents, including $90 million to operate the new research center and $300 million in uncompensated care, which will come with this, which benefits the underprivileged. Yeah. In, in, but but Sugar Law Center, left-leaning um, and also very community activist-oriented, uh, says the benefit's just $9 million. So there is a $595 million gap mm-hmm. between what the developers <laughs> yeah. say this will do for the community and what the activists say. This uh, Really? A $2.2 billion investment, and you think the only benefit is worth $9 million? It's insane. Yeah. Uh, We'll wait and see how that goes. President Trump lighting it up in Waterford. Huge crowd out there. 2,000 people packing the hangar uh, where he had his rally. And uh, we're going to be talking coming up with Matthew Schneider about that. It's a $356 million verdict, but when you add in the interest penalty into it, it's closer to $455 million. Uh, the tab that the former president is expected and to pay. And then you have to tie in the money he owes the lady he was accused of. The 80-plus million dollars for sieging yeah. Carroll. Agent Carroll, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and the, it's the other stuff in there. The fact that three-year ban, yeah, it's, if he's elected president, he's going to have a four-year ban from being involved in the Trump organization anyway. Uh, but it knocks his sons out. And at right. this point in their careers and in their financial outlook, that's got to be devastating was daughter for involved? Eric. Was no, and that's an interesting question. Yeah, and, you know, can you transfer those assets to your wife or your daughter, or transfer control, and so that you can continue to do this? Also, and I want to ask Matthew about this. There, we're going to be talking with Matthew Schneider, the former Eastern District uh, U- U.S. Attorney. Um, if you slam the door to him using New York banks to borrow to finance your appeal, and also keep the wolf from the door. Can you function if you can't get loans? Uh, how difficult does that make his ability to even have a, a legitimate chance at appeal? 
Go go out, outside the country and get him, right? Could could be Deutsche. Well, he's used Deutsche Bank a yeah, lot, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about the both the, the partisanship of this, how you came up with that four hundred million dollar uh, figure. But he was lighting it up, slamming the Biden EV mandate on Saturday night. Crooked Joe has ordered a hit job on Michigan manufacturing with his insane electric vehicle mandate. Do the auto workers here, of which we have a lot, uh, do you agree with that? There's the guy. Uh, come on up here. Come here. He ended up bringing up one of the local auto workers who did a great, did a great job uh, you know, rallying the crowd. Um, it, apparently, Joe Biden is listening. We found out uh, late yesterday that uh, the EPA is going to move the goalposts, give the automakers more time and auto workers more time to go through this uh, transition. Um, he talked a lot about manufacturing in Michigan. He says EVs are going to China uh, and that this is going to be a battle in Michigan about the future of manufacturing. You know, you've lost already 54% over the years, 54% of auto manufacturing, and you're going to lose the rest of it very fast, a lot of it coming out of Michigan, a lot of it coming out. So we're going to get it back, and we're going to have, we're going to have big investments from other companies. And now we're, listen to this. We're looking, look, we're going to put tariffs on cars. I did it with China. I stopped that inflow with China. We took in $444 billion from China. No president has ever taken in 10 cents. And you know what? I protected the auto workers by doing that. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. But if you are selling BMWs, Toyotas, Hyundais, did your heart just beat a little faster when he starts talking about tariffs? He did put a 25% tariff on Chinese vehicles. Mm-hmm. It has kept Chinese vehicles out of our market. They may try to bring them in from Mexico, but they haven't done that uh, yet at, by with any significant numbers. Uh, but that four, I fact checked that four hundred forty-four okay. billion dollars. Yeah, it is eighty billion dollars a year, and we've had it for about five years. So, yeah. so that's true. So, true. Yeah. But I checked the tra- the tax foundation. Yes, that's raised an incredible amount of money. Did it bring us a net gain gain in jobs? No, we lost one hundred sixty-six thousand jobs because of those tariffs. It actually shaved some fractions of a point off of our GDP, so it did not grow the economy and there were retaliatory tariffs not to mention the fact that american consumers paid a lot of those tariffs because of paths through so uh just to add some context to the president's remarks we'll be back the case is a complete and total sham it's a sham case there were no victims no defaults no damages no complaints no nothing there was nothing and he paid all of those loans back on time that's Donald Trump lighting it up. Uh, the first comments he has made publicly since that huge verdict, judgment, was passed out of Judge Engron's court in New York State. It is subject to appeal. What are the prospects for that? And let's check some of the arguments that uh, the former president made during that rally. We welcome in Matthew Schneider, leader of investigations and white-collar defense, practice at Honigman Law, and also our former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, appointed by uh, President Donald Trump himself. Matthew, good morning. Good morning, Guy. Thank you for having me on. So I want you to, to kind of uh, focus on something the president said from the podium Saturday night about the law that was used in this civil uh, adventure system the case was brought under a consumer fraud statute that has never ever been used before for this purpose in fact a very unfriendly media company they hate me 
said that they studied litigation going back many, many years, and no case, they had, not one case was ever brought like this in the history of New York State. This is the only one. I wonder if they were doing that for political purposes or for election interference. <laughs> so we will, I will leave that open to you for, for uh, another answer. But Matthew, when he raises that issue about the law itself being misapplied, is that fertile ground for an appeal? I don't think that's his best appellate argument. If we just look in context here, what happened in Michigan, just think about a week ago, Jennifer Crumbly was convicted of not uh, not protecting a gun from her son, who then used it at Oxford High School and, and murdered kids. And that law had never been used against a person in that context in a school shooting. But no one is saying that that's improper. It's just the first time that it's been done before. Mm. And so the argument that Trump has that the law hasn't been used in this context, number one, it's a common law fraud statute. That's really what it's based on, which is old. And number two, people do that regularly if, if for example, in RICO cases, sometimes you know they designed that law to be to go against mobs. Now they're used against street gangs or corrupt public officials. That's not his best argument. His best argument are, is about the fine. The fine amount is enormous, even for Donald Trump. And he does have a couple of issues that he can raise on appeal to try to get that down. Uh, Matthew, uh, where he will be banned from doing any business in New York for three years and his sons as well. His daughter wasn't included in that, I don't think. And so can it be transferred over to her and she run it until the three years is over or no? Or Melania as a, as a right. stalking horse? Sure. This order, if you read it carefully, it applies only to Donald Trump and his sons. It doesn't apply to those other people. Now, sometimes if you do those transfer of assets, it's found to be improper. It's called a, a straw transfer. But there's nothing in this order about that. And in fact, President Trump has already had experience in transferring assets to other people. When he became president, he put his own holdings into other people's names. He's done that before. He's divested away from himself. He's transferred ownership. The order doesn't prohibit that. And I think he would just do that again, and I don't think that would be a problem. I mean, because when if he wins the election, he would have to do that anyway, right? That's correct. And as I said, he's done that before. It's Probably not uh, too complicated for him to do it. He's already done it once. Let's rewind back to the to the the judgment against him. Three hundred fifty plus million dollars. When you add in interest penalties, it could be four hundred fifty million dollars. How do you calculate those damages when there wasn't one bank, not one injured party, saying, "Hey, we lost X amount of money on that loan because he lied." Right, and that is really his argument. If you think about how these types of damages are calculated, in the past in New York, you've had actual victims. You've had people, individuals who've been cheated in the consumer protection world. Mm -hmm. They've lost money. They have been personally impacted. Here, we don't have that. And I think there is a really good argument for saying that when, when the impact is not personal to these individuals, it, in fact, there are no real traditional victims other than these banks. The Attorney General's argument is only that, well, the banks could have charged more interest on this. Okay, that's fine, but does that really get you up to $455 million? I think Trump has a pretty good argument to get that chipped down a bit. I've got a friend who was a, who was a New York lawyer who wrote some of those loans to Donald Trump, and he said, did we know 
that those evaluations were, you know, a cock and bull story? Absolutely. But he was a whale. We wanted to do business with him Mm -hmm. because it raised our profile. And so we did. And he paid his bills on time. Uh, I mean, that's uh, it could be a pretty compelling argument. It could be. Matthew, um, what do you see as um, other powerful individuals and corporations holding them accountable for their actions? Will this you know, uh, give notice to them as well? Probably will, and that's uh, another reason why other people other than Donald Trump would want to have him appeal this issue. And if you if you look at the judgment, in addition to that money, the, the judgment of, of this court says that Donald Trump can't run this business enterprise for three years. His sons can't do this for two years. They can't take loans out in banks. My, I, I would argue this on appeal that why why does any of this apply? The court has appointed an independent monitor to oversee everything. Mm-hmm. And if you have a monitor, then what is the point of all of these uh, restrictions? If you have the monitor, then you should allow Donald Trump's son to run the business because you already have the oversight. That's a pretty good appellate argument. I haven't heard anybody else raise that Mm. yet, but having dealt with monitors in the past, I would certainly think that would be a good claim that he would have to get some of these restrictions lifted. Well, and the one that really stuck out to me was this ban on using New York banks to obtain loans. He's going to have to finance this appeal. Now, I can understand the judge is going to say, well, we we don't want the same victims to be victimized twice. (laughs) But bottom line is... You are slamming the door to, to to funding that he's going to need. Is there an argument that you're impeding the defendant's ability to uh, to mount an appeal? Yes, there certainly is, because that's one of the harshest blows here is that you're trying to allow a person after he serves his punishment, so to speak, to get back on his feet. This doesn't allow Trump to get back on his feet, at least in New York. He can't take out these loans in New York. Now, he does have ways around that as well. He also banks in New Jersey. He probably banks in all the 50 states in this union. And the Trump organization is multinational. Trump owns a huge luxury golf course in Dubai. He could probably get a loan from the Emiratis to fund these operations. So Mm -hmm. he can go overseas or to other states. Matthew, and, and given your expertise in white-collar defense, what advice would you give the former president? Well, I would stick to the record, what's already been down here. Um, you know, these appeal issues that we've just been talking about, the fines, the amounts, how it applies in other cases, the, or the punitive nature that doesn't come up with other cases involving victims. What's already been litigated a lot is these attacks that he's had against the prosecutor and the judge. Oftentimes, most mm-hmm. of the time, those types of arguments don't succeed on appeal. You can't tell Donald Trump to not appeal and say the judge was biased against him. That's not going to happen. He's going to say that. Mm -hmm. I would just say my advice would be that's not your strongest argument. You've got other arguments to make. You can make that one. I just wouldn't lead front and center with that. Yeah, but that's the difference between a sound legal argument and a good political grievance, right? And, And it's still a great grievance on the campaign stump. Final question for you. I know that there are Trump apologists, defenders, and also I think just Main Street folks saying, look, this looks like prosecutorial abuse. This looks like an overreach in terms of the judgment. But for those that are deciding their vote on a candidate who value and prize ethical behavior and moral behavior, did he do what they said he did? Did he behave fraudulently based on the evidence that you saw? 
Well, one of the bigger questions, Guy, is do people care? Let's even assume that he did all these things. Will that affect the voters' choices? And maybe it won't. If we look at the numbers, you know, the valuations, some some of these things, they appear to be off, like the square footage in Trump Tower. (laughs) You can't make more space. (laughs) You can't make more space. But, you know, politically, the Attorney General of New York didn't help herself at all when she made this argument during the campaign, I'm going after Donald Trump, and then she did. That's not helpful. It makes people distrust the Attorney General of New York and and fall more firmly on the yeah. side of Donald Trump. But I, you know, I'm one of those that would say character matters in a president. That's you know, uh, ethical behavior matters. And so, if you're making that judgment, some of these allegations, when they're when they're laid out, some of it's disturbing. And well, that could very well be true. Voters pick on different things. If all if all the voters thought about was ethical behavior, Bob Dole would have been the president of the United States. But that, that never happened. So <laughs> they've got they've got other things to think about. Indeed. Matthew Schneider, we thank you for your time and uh, we'll await this appeal. And uh, hopefully he will take some of your sound advice. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you. Almost all of us have something in common. We likely have large bags of empty bottles, guy, ready to be returned Are to you the my grocery wife? store. <laughs> <laughs> They're sitting in our garages or in our basements Where or in that little room. Take off those the back. <laughs> there are new bills under consideration that will change what can be returned and the times those bottles can be returned. WJR Senior News Analyst Marie Osborne takes a look at the legislation. Good morning, Marie. And good morning, guys. So right now we can return those bottles anytime. Guy, we're talking to you. Uh, but one of those, but one of these new bills would set time parameters around when retailers can accept them from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Say during their posted hours of business. The changes are uh, in three bills under consideration, and two of these bills were introduced last July. They're going to expand the types of containers that would fall under the existing 10 cent bottle return laws. Some of the new bottles and beverage containers that. Would would be added to the list of returnables would include things like non-carbonated water, wine, and alcohol. But those two bills are stalled right now in the House. But this other one is in action. During the pandemic, a lot of retailers offered very limited hours for bottle returns. And that kept and some kept those hours even as we returned to more normal. Uh, states after the pandemic, sometimes retailers had just a couple of hours you could return those bottles or they were during the middle of the day. So there's been this uptick of complaints from Mm -hmm. consumers that say that too often these hours are during their business day. They can't return the bottles. So the idea is to get Michigan consumers back on the returnable bandwagon. Michigan has one of the highest bottle recycling rates in the country. We're at about 88 to 96 percent. That was between 2010 and 2019, but it dropped dramatically at the start of COVID and it has yet to really recover. Right now, the return rate hovers at about 75 percent. And guys, the original bottle bill uh, was adopted in 1976. It was an effort, of course, to curb pollution. And if you're curious about what you re- can you return, can you return a dirty can, can you return a crushed can, you can go to 
um, the Michigan Beverage Containers Law, the Bottle Bill or Bottle Deposit Law, Michigan at Michigan.gov. So from 2010 to 2019, we were, what, 80, you said 80 to 90-something percent. I mean, 88 to 96 percent, that's really very very good and then after the or during the pandemic after pandemic, that 70 went, we dropped to 75 percent. so where are all those bottles going i don't are they probably going in the, the garbage, trash in the garbage? You could imagine yeah yeah well it, it, the other part is and it drives me crazy as i'm coming down the lodge if you look to your left Ugh. on the southbound side there are more water bottles oh there. yeah it is so are you telling me with this expansion the one that's stalled that yeah. The Dasani bottles, the Aquafina bottles, those are non-carbonated water. Right. Those would now be subject to returnables because what would that do to the volume of plastic that retailers have to manage? Right. So, yes, this would be included in the in these two bills that are not, not going anywhere, at least not right now. They were introduced last July. So you're looking at non-carbonated water, and I'm with you, Guy. I think that that's a major, major uh, part of what we have to return. Wine bottles, alcohol bottles, uh, those are the ones that would be included. And they, you know, if if you're getting money back, they're just going to have the retailers say figure out how to do that. There's going to have. It's going to be a cutoff, though, is a, a certain amount that you can turn in at can, a time. Right now, you can return up. Uh, it's up to the store, okay? okay. But you can return uh, twenty up to twenty five dollars. That's the law. But some retailers allow you to return more than that. But right now, it's twenty five dollars that you can return. I can understand not wanting to accept out of state containers. Right, mm-hmm. I get that. Yeah. That would be terribly unfair. And that's we remember fraud, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Wasn't it the guy in Seinfeld? Uh, that, you know, that was they, they call him driving the bottles Bottom. back to New Jersey. <laughs> but the, um, the 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 thing that concerns me, and it drives me crazy, and I wish they would address it. If my kids get some kind of exotic uh, craft beer which is sold in Michigan, and I take it back to a Kroger or something like that, why won't they accept that? If they don't didn't sell it, if they, they don't, don't sell it, it yeah. then they yeah. don't take it. Right. It has to be sold in their store. That is correct. Yeah, we need to change that. Because, yeah. I mean, then it, it leaves you holding. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah, so if I bought it up, you know, up north, and it, I come down here, they don't sell it down here, but it's still in Michigan. If it's got the Michigan deposit on it, yeah. they should accept it no matter, you know, if it's a... Weird thing. I've I've also tried to just get my kids. Would you just drink regular something regular? <laughs> <laughs> but Maria yeah. Osborne, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, that is that is something. I mean, I and I agree with that. You know, because if it's if it's uh, has the label on there, Michigan Tencent, just take it. Yeah, and they spit it back at you, and then you got to carry the stuff back to the car. And, and usually that you know what? Where does it end up? Uh, well, you're either right. in your car or in the garbage well, it, it or does, something. It does end up in the garbage because it's like how many how many different recycling centers am I going to have to visit to find out where the or or I can call them up. Where the heck did you get this? Yeah, and they won't remember. Why Why would you? Yeah, exactly. You know, so maybe I think this is just a plot to get Dad to stock the fridge instead of them bringing their <laughs> own. That's it. There's a there's a conspiracy there. Um, oh. we were talking uh, a a little bit about the. Uh, uh, the uh, People's Choice mm-hmm. Awards and and uh, some of the stuff uh, that was out there the uh, the the movies that you would think would be the big winners oh I should say the comedy show of the year only murders in the building if you haven't seen it it's Steve Martin and Martin Short it's hysterical 
uh, the drama show of the year for TV, The Last of Us, Loki, uh, oh. a Marvel uh, yes. thing on Disney Plus. Thor's brother. Won sci-fi fantasy. But over the weekend, the, the biggest winner was the Bob Marley movie. They did it, great box office. They did really well. Um, what, about $50 million, I believe, uh, yeah. over the weekend. That Marvel movie didn't do very well, though. Tanked. And I can't remember. It's it's a spinoff from Spider-Man. Spider-Man Web something, or I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, and it's, it you know, they're, 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 yeah. Yeah. they're just reaching deeper and deeper into, the, into Stan Lee's, you know, lesser-known characters, and it just isn't. Yeah. It isn't working. No. Um, I mean, if they stick with some of the originals. Now, Loki, they've managed to build into a, a huge thing. Uh, but, yeah, just. And you're wondering if this isn't a harbinger of things to come. Mm-hmm. That it's just maybe the superhero thing is beginning uh, to die out. Heaven knows there are other stories out there. We'll be back. Well, while there's a lot of discussion about President Biden's uh, competency, I got to tell you, you give Donald Trump credit. He stood there without much of a teleprompter for an hour and 20 minutes and spoke to a crowd of 2,000 Trump happy fans uh, at that uh, Waterford airport. And uh, he covered a lot of ground. One of the things that was interesting, Lloyd, was Mm -hmm. we know that during the 2016 and 2020 campaign, he just ripped on any form of early voting, most notably what he called mail-in, mail-in voting ballots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, no such, uh, you know, grievance while he was uh, at this rally. In fact, he seems to be embracing the early voting that Michigan has. What's the most important thing? To go out and vote, right? We have to go out and vote. We got to get young people out to vote. And you're going to vote, and we're going to turn this thing around. This country's not doing so well. We're going to turn this country around fast. And he acknowledged that you can start. You started voting today, and uh, and there were apparently signs up at that rally uh, with QR codes uh, instructing people where they can go to find out where to vote early. It seemed like I heard some booze in there too. Yeah, I, I don't, don't know what I, I, I don't, don't know what that, what that was about. about. When he brought up voting, he started. There, there were a couple times that you know, and I couldn't understand whether the, the, maybe they're chanting something else. Because yeah. when you looked at the crowd, I mean, it was it was amazing and it was very passionate, pro Trump. He also made it very clear that in his mind there is one and only one chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Your new Michigan Republican Party chairman, former Congressman Pete Hoekstra. I actually recommended it. I said, do you think you could ever get this guy Hoekstra? He's unbelievable. And you were willing to do it, and I appreciate it. Everybody appreciates it. We're going to win the state. If we win Michigan, we win the election. There's going to be a hearing in the suit tomorrow over the, the Karamo Hoekstra showdown about who's leading the party, and hopefully there'll be some clarity to come out of that. Bottom line is, when you hear the president, when you listen to the RNC, we may have two state conventions come March 2nd to choose delegates to the Republican National Convention. But only one is going to be sat. Yeah, right. Exactly. Only one is going to be seated. That's right. And it's going to be those that are led by Pete Hookstra. Hookstra. And so for Christina Caramo to still hang in at this point is, is just a divisive exercise, which should be uh, short-circuited. Um, but I know they're 
And there actually, when he brought up Pete Hookster, there was some noise there too. Uh, yeah, I can't tell I can't if it's booze or, or if they're something else. If they're it's saying, just a new yeah. way of expressing their love and affection, but it <laughs> it, it, it was it was a little hard. Maybe if, if some folks can tell it, what what is the ooh thing? Yeah, <laughs> going unless on there. some of Caramo's people were there. They're, well, and you know, you know there is there are some perhaps uh, folks there that still support her, and and uh, we know that it was on the state committee. Yes, a, a number of them. Um, but uh, but in the pre- former president's mind, uh, no question. Pete Hoekstra is his guy. And we had a, a pretty good turnout, folks getting used to this idea mm-hmm. of early voting. Yeah. Uh, about 6,500 uh, voters participated statewide on Saturday, which was the first day of early voting, expressing pride in the turnout. Secretary Benson, who voted down here in the city of Detroit, said she was ca- uh, proud to cast her vote uh, with all the others who uh, participated on Michigan's first day. The historic opportunity for early voting will continue until Sunday, February 25th, making a significant shift in Michigan's electoral process following the passage of Proposal 2, a constitutional requirement that mandates at least nine days of in-person early voting for statewide and federal elections. Michigan joins 21 other states in implementing in-person early voting, providing voters with greater flexibility and accessibility to exercise their civic duty. We've got a new border bill out there. After the Senate uh, bipartisan compromise led by Senator James Lankford of, of Oklahoma who's, who's was tanked. This, this is the Problem Solvers Caucus. These okay. are those folks that are kind of in the moderate middle, uh, those folks that are really uh, you know, committed to reaching across the aisle in the House. And uh, what they're saying is we're going to dial it back to you know, most of the Trump-era policies. We're going to... Uh, resubscribe Title 42, which was the pandemic era mm-hmm. ba- border slowdown, right. basically. And we're going to reconstitute Remain in Mexico, okay. which was a very effective Trump era policy forcing migrants and asylum seekers that, yeah, you can apply, but you're not waiting here. You're not moving to the interior of this country. You're not going to be a burden on social services agencies throughout right. the country. So it, it also would tag $47.5 billion for Ukraine, $10.5 billion for Israel, about $5 billion for Taiwan and other uh, Indo-Pacific allies. So it gets the job done. Uh, Lindsey Graham talked about it on uh, Face the Nation and Meet the Press and said this is something he believes a lot of Ukraine-focused lawmakers could get behind. I see a pathway forward now for Ukraine, Taiwan, and and, uh, Israel. I see a way to secure our border in a more simple fashion. Let's make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. All of this can happen in the next 30 days. It would be a game changer for the world. So uh, we'll see what happens. He doesn't seem like he's behind holding this up all year long and having this be a political football. He says the border can't wait. Mm -hmm. What's going on at our southern border is such a calamity that it can't be put off until after the election. Now, he was asked by one of the hosts, I can't remember which one, Mm -hmm. uh, have you talked to former President Trump about this? And he said, well, I have talked to Trump about this terrorism thing with Russia. In fact, this was his idea. But no, I haven't talked to him about this bipartisan bill. It was making a lot of news on Friday and Saturday. I trust that former President Trump knows about it. He He didn't didn't mention it. He didn't mention it Saturday night. There were a lot of things he didn't mention. He didn't mention Navalny's death uh, or the, the sadness that comes with one of the leading dissidents and voices for freedom in Russia being silenced. Uh, didn't talk about this 16-week abortion ban that he is oh, right. privately yeah. embracing, which would that there would be a national ban, but it would permit abortions up to 16 weeks. Um, that's kind of a compromise that I think you know would mean that about 95% of the abortions that are now happening would still happen. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and uh, but he's not he's not talking about that. I mean, his rally is a rally. It isn't a position statement. Um, he talked a lot about the auto industry and what it needs to be going forward and said this about uh, Biden's EV mandate. A vote for Biden is a vote to send tens of thousands of Michigan jobs to China and other places that we don't want them to go. A vote for Trump is a vote to keep those manufacturing jobs in America and add a lot of jobs. And Biden is listening and apparently ready to change his policy because he knows he's getting slammed on that, right? Yeah, the dealers are coming after him. The unions want him to slow it down. And the manufacturers are quietly doing it. They're doing it through their surrogates and their alliances in Washington. They know politically. uh, But they want some return on their investment, though. They do. They do. And we had a good discussion with Sandy Barua uh, from the Greater Regional Detroit Chamber about this. He said the one thing that we can't have is this constant uncertainty. So, yes, for some, moving the goalposts is good, but you've already got so many sunk costs into those EVs um, that they need help selling them. Uh, I think most of the dealers are breathing a sigh of relief today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll we'll see what happens uh, with that. But that rule could be in place come March. The question is... California is not backing off. Other states no. that are more liberal are the, not the West backing Coast? off no, on this. No. So I, I think it ends up being maybe a sound political strategy for Biden, but may not change that much in terms of the, what's being forced down everybody's throat here. Um, but uh, the you know <laughs> Biden is, is is hearing that Trump's getting traction. Oh yeah, with uh, with that argument. Uh, when we come back, we're going to have our weekly check-in with Nolan Finley on that and other stories making news in around the state of Michigan. Uh, we'll check in with Nolan next on JR Morning at 819. It is Monday. It is President's Day. And uh, who better to check in with than Nolan Finley, editorial page editor for the Detroit News. Nolan, good morning. Morning, Guy. Happy President's Day. And happy President's Day to you. Um, is, uh, is, we're, we can talk a little bit about the former president here, but I wanted to get to your op-ed. Um, Governor Gretchen Whit- Whitmer uh, hosting the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen this week and pronounced our economy booming and sound and healthy. Uh, gosh, I'm, I, I, I needed that diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's propped up on toothpicks, uh, Guy. I mean, how... <laughs> How can you think that a economy or, or make the argument that an economy is healthy and strong when when a quarter of our spending is going on the national credit card? More than a quarter, 28 percent. We are borrowing to pay for our operations at a time when revenues are coming in strong. So it's not like we're in a recession and the revenues are are drying up for the for the federal treasury. Uh, we've got strong revenues coming in. We grew revenues this year, and yet we keep spending way more than we're taking in. And nobody can look out and see a time when we're not doing that. This is not a health economy. This That is a, a economy with a chronic disease, $34 trillion in debt. You know how much that is for you and uh, Lloyd? Is it 40000 per now or something like that? 100000 for you and Lloyd. Wow. Each. You first, and Lloyd. Your kids. <laughs> and, and your grandkids. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, and, and I was pleased to see in her town hall yesterday Nikki Haley talking about the debt and the deficit and what she'd do about it. Uh, 
Saturday night, those words never escaped Donald Trump's lips. No, but what he did talk about was this new reciprocal tax policy. So if Germany taxes us, we tax them the same amount. He claims it will wipe out the deficit, but not a word about spending cuts from him. No, and, and to me, that I was, I was there Saturday night, and to me, that moment pretty much summed up uh, what should be the the uh, slogan of his campaign. You screw us, we screw you. I mean, it was all about vindictive, uh, getting even, here's what I'm going to do to punish these people and that people. It was just uh, an incredible rant. So, Nolan, uh, the former president talked about Hoekstra being the chair of the state uh, GOP, and we, we he, when he was talking, and he talked about early voting too. He talked about early voting, but he it, we heard this like ooh, or I don't know if it was booing or ooing, or you were there. Can you tell us what you think that was? Well, you know, there's still a lot of folks in the party who thinks thinks Christina Caramo is the uh, uh, chairman of the state GOP. So that division okay. between, I mean, we we were already divided in the Republican Party between sort of the establishment Republicans and these counter-revolutionary Republicans, if you will. And now there's a split between that group. I, I don't know how many different ways you can divide the Republican Party. Well, we're, I think we're, we're finding out. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it, it was interesting in this, this Trump judgment that came down on Friday, uh, perhaps as much as $455 million once yeah. you add in the interest on it, um, it was certainly prosecutorial and partisan in nature, and the judgment seemed to be built on I don't know what because there was nobody coming forward to claim damages. Now we are in a dangerous position if the legal system now is going to become part of the partisan political system in this country, where uh, where it's weaponized against the party in power's political opponents. I think. Uh, I, you know, I, I can't say uh, talk about the legal merits of the case. It sounds sketchy to me, but what's surprising to me, Trump's been out of the office over three years now, and these any most of these crimes, alleged crimes he's committed, happened during that period of before he left office, and yet we're just now getting around to prosecuting. I mean, that that's just blatantly political that they saved these court cases for the election year. And, you know, I, I just find it extraordinarily uh, repugnant that that they're doing this and getting away with it. And I'll tell you, it's not working. Saturday night, I can't tell you how many people I talked to who says, we're here to support Trump. He's suffering for us. They're persecuting him. You know, this whole messianic language, uh, they've made him a victim. And that's a you know, for the people, if their goal is to take him down, that's the wrong way to do it. Nolan, right to work has been repealed. Uh, how does that work for Michigan's competitiveness now? Well, I guess, you know, we'll see as it plays out. I think it's, 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 it's extraordinarily detrimental for the competitiveness of Michigan. Other, other states can hold that up uh, to assure uh, employers or potential employers that perhaps you know you could come come to their states and the union won't take over their facilities. Uh, Michigan doesn't have that uh, that assurance any longer, and I think it's particularly 
uh, risky with Sean Fain as president of the of the UAW. You see what he's willing to do uh, to a company, and now he's trying to do it down south. And I found it uh, very interesting last week that uh, Jim Farley said uh, we've got to rethink our relation relationship uh, with the UAW. We've got to rethink our decision on plant siting that we may have to go places where it's a little more, it's a little less expensive to build these, these vehicles. I think that was fair warning. Uh, One of the things uh, that we're watching that broke uh, late yesterday is that the Biden administration has put forth a change in its EV mandates with the EPA. The green energy folks, uh, their hair is on fire about this and said it's going to lead to a warmer world faster but it's an acknowledgement, at least, that this EV deadline that he imposed on at, in 2030 is not workable. Is that a, do you think that's a, a good move? I, I think it's a good move for the consumer. Is it good for the auto industry overall, Nolan? Well, I mean, the auto industry is so far down this EV road. I don't know, but I think it's about to reality. We are hurtling toward the destruction of our basic transportation system. The automobile is, our, is, the, is at the basic level of our transportation system and we are not ready for to to convert to electric vehicles on the pace that the federal government has been demanding and the eba has been demanding Uh, there are still so many things standing in the way of a full-scale conversion to electric vehicles and you know people keep warning people it's not like we're not talking about it and i think this is a smart decision and you could see the electorate turning toward or mm-hmm. away from the whole electric vehicle movement and i think you know everything now uh, is about politics and it's fortunate in this case when you were at the, the, the trump rally yesterday was that one of the biggest applause lines when he went after the ev mandate oh i mean he continually went after it and you know appealing to uaw workers that they're going to destroy your jobs with this and yeah, I mean, it was a very seemed to be a very effective message. Uh, Rashida Tlaib was on social media. She had a video saying, you know, urging uh, her constituents to vote uncommitted for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, how would that affect him in this upcoming election? Well, I think he's, you know, uncommitted is not a candidate. So it would be nice if the candidate, if the Democrats ha- actually had a choice. Uh, other than Joe Biden, and and at this moment they don't. I don't think it affects them much at all, and, you know, unless it catches fire across the country and Democrats wake up and say this guy can't win. Well, interesting. I, uh, Dean Phillips canceled some events over the weekend. You got to wonder if he's getting ready to pull the plug on his kind of, to use your term, counter counter revolutionary campaign <laughs> to try to get people to accept the idea that maybe an alternative in the Democrat ranks would make sense. We'll see where that goes, and we will talk about that with you at a future date. Nolan, thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, when we come back, a guy who had a pretty doggone good weekend, Michigan State University basketball coach Tom Izzo on his team's win over those Wolverines. In college basketball, as the March tournament draws closer, we know toughness is a prized trait to have and when you (laughs) limit your opposition to zero points in the last seven minutes oh man that is toughness 
personified. That's right. And that's exactly what the Spartans did to the Wolverines this weekend. We welcome in Steve Courtney, our WJR senior sports analyst and the coach of the Michigan State men's basketball team. Tom Izzo, gentlemen, happy Monday and happy President's Day. Back at you there, Guy Lloyd. Hello again, everyone. This conversation with Magnum T.I. brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Yes, you know, the winged wheeler is going to start stacking some W's. As a matter of fact, a very rare uh, weekday matinee tilt in Seattle later. Uh, my good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Uh, yeah, NA squared Saturday night supposed to be a road tilt for our Michigan State Spartans, but the chance of go green, go white, rather prominent throughout the proceedings. Spartans get that 73-63 win, as you alluded to, Guy. Uh, some crazy good defense towards the end. Uh, the Wolverines unable to score for the last seven minutes and one second. Uh, meanwhile, the Spartans utilize a crafty 8-0 run. Coach, how are you this morning? I'm good, guys. How are you? Everything is sensational. Um, you had to be pleased uh, with what you saw defensively there, Tom, in particular, uh, at the end when it mattered. Not to mention, you forced 22 Wolverine turnovers, 15 steals, uh, and that was uh, unbelievable. 19-2 advantage on the fast break. Yeah, it was, a, it was a strange game. You know, give them credit. They played really well early, made a lot of shots early, and some contested, I thought, and some maybe uh, we didn't contest as well, but they made shots, and the bigs played well, and uh, we got in a little foul trouble, too. And um, But for the most part, you know, we get a little bit of lead, and then uh, we just we weren't able to build on it. And then in the second half, I guess it is good that we figured out how to close. We've lost some games at the end, and um this one we won at the end but as you know it's a very been a, it's a tough situation for them what they're going through with uh you know guys playing on the weekends and weekdays that's difficult as a coach and, and as a team and and for us um you know going on the road anytime you go on the road as we've all found out even yesterday you know it is not easy to win on the road so uh we were pleased with that Still got some work to do, but we were definitely pleased uh, with the fact we beat your rival on the road and, and he finished the game strong. Coach, uh, Jamie's not here today, so the analysis probably won't be as as good <laughs> because Jamie's not here. But I got, it I got to be better. <laughs> she's, she's helping Yammer Yager raise his jersey. Into there the you go. Yeah. So hey. I, I got to ask you about Malik Hall. Is, is he is he improving or is he just finding the spots that work for him? You know, I think a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I'm a leak as a kid that confidence matters. And, you know, throughout his last two years, you know, injuries have played a big part in it. When you you need confidence and then you're injured, <clears throat> it's like double damage. And I, I really believe that uh, Malik, uh, you know, has had like 10, 12 good games in a row with mm-hmm. that one at Northwestern where he didn't have a point to rebound anything. Um, you know, no explanation. But, I'm really happy for him. You know, you're always happy when seniors and he's been spending more and more time. His shot has improved and um, his overall game, you know, he, he's got an inside game, a mid-range game, and, and he can even shoot the three now and he's getting to the free throw line. I think that's one thing, Steve, that that we, uh, as you ran off the things earlier, 
I think getting to the free throw line has been uh, more important for us. You know, we had some games and we didn't get there at all, and now we're getting there 20 plus times or 18 plus times. And, uh, that definitely benefits everybody. Speaking of which, a two point lead at the half. And how you got there, a uh, very interesting story. A.J. Hogard, Tom, on the bench with a couple of fouls. Trey Holloman also with a couple. You replace him uh, with Davis Smith, the son of our Spartan legend Steve Smith. He draws a foul, sinks both free throws. And I think it exemplifies how close your team is because this entire team was just so very happy for Davis Smith at that moment. Yeah, those are some of the times that uh, I told my staff I'm putting Davis in, and they said, what do you mean? I said, you know, he'll be able to defend, and I don't want to get another guy in foul trouble. And then he he draws a foul, and I pulled him over. I mean, he every night before home games, we shoot free throws for 15 minutes, and he's always 98%. You know, his dad never missed a free throw in his life, it seemed like. And mm-hmm. uh, so I said, hey, make your dad proud and get us the lead. And he went there and knocked them both down. And, and you know, the closeness you talk about, you know, um, I said I learned a lot when Steven made a shot. And then I learned a lot when Nick Sanders made a shot. And that sounds crazy, but I think you know where I'm going. And then, sure, uh, you know, after the game, the joy in that locker room for Davis um, just kind of says it all. You know, those are three guys that don't get to play much and, and yet they're a big part of the team, and I think the players appreciate it. And that's one thing I did enjoy about our team. We got all three of our guys that don't play as much. have all scored, and how the team reacted is kind of important, and it was, it was pretty heartwarming to be in that locker room. Coach, what do you think about the – I'm sorry, um, Steve. What, what do you think about your, the leadership of your guys? Um you know, it's, it is something that um, I'm constantly um, pushing, you know, consistency and leadership. And, uh, you know, you don't just make somebody a Magic Johnson or a Mateen Cleaves. You know, it doesn't just happen. I, uh, you know, I, I watched a little episode of The Last Dance last night. And you realize, uh, you know, what Michael went through in that uh, deal. And then I watched Magic's and what he went through and, you know, leaders are, uh, there's not as many of them anymore mm-hmm. because uh, everybody's, a leader means he gathers people. And we live in an era where it's pretty much getting to be more siloed. Uh, you know, worry about yourself and that's it. So I'm probably never going to be happy with it, but I do think collectively we're, we're getting better. It's that one voice. And I said during one huddle late, you know, um, it's going to have to come within, you know, you five guys that are on the floor. We we aren't going to go down the stretch. I, you know, I'm not going to make a free throw or make a foul. And so we talk about it a lot, and it's it's probably improving, uh, but it's uh, it's still one of the things that I bet you a lot of teams are, are searching for more now than maybe you did in the past. Tom, i got to say, uh, Cohen Carr, eight points. Another patented slam, uh, still photos all over social media, uh, eyes above the rim. Uh, in tribute, I duplicated it in my backyard yesterday, <laughs> got some air. Oh, my goodness. Uh, the problem, he, the only problem I thought to one of your neighbors, it was uh, you had a trampoline, a trampoline 
ceiling below, and it was a five-foot rim. So <laughs> I guess you did get up there, but it was aided. And uh, But, you know, Cohen is uh, – I mean, he's getting better, and, and uh, you know, I know it's been hard, hard for fans, hard for them, uh, him and Book. But Book's making some progress, made a couple of plays. Um, I'm happy with, you know, Jackson Kohler is getting a, a little better. Carson Cooper played very, very well in stretches. And, uh, you know, it's, it's by committee a little bit with some of our subs, but we asked for more out of the bench, and we had a tremendous – advantage and bench points and uh and you stated it earlier i do want to thank all the michigan state fans don't have any idea how they got tickets wow but there were a lot of people there and uh and that was um incredible uh when they starting lineups came because in uh in chrysler they you don't see the upper deck is it's not as lit you know it's every arena works differently and so i couldn't tell and and then when you heard them, you said, wow, it was great. So yes. I do want to thank each and every Spartan that uh, somehow found a way. That's great. Coach, thanks so much. Steve, thank you. All right, up next, Iowa. It's going to be uh, 7 o'clock tip. Day. Back at you, Coach. All right, take care. Yeah, we'll look forward to the Hawkeyes. Uh, when we come back, 10 years ago, quite frankly, it had lost its luster, one of Detroit's great jewels. The comeback we've witnessed and is the best yet to come. Next on JR Morning. Detroit's Belle Isle transition from city control to a state park back in 2014. It was a pretty big deal, especially with Detroit's bankruptcy filing making headlines. And amidst all that chaos, Belle Isle was kind of left hanging. Like, you know, just imagine going to the park and finding that all the bathrooms were closed. It's kind of crazy, right? But here we are today with Belle Isle thriving once again. And joining us on the JR Morning Live line to talk more about it is Maud Lyons. He is interim president and CEO of the Belle Isle Conservancy. Maud, good morning. It's great to have you here. Good morning. It was it was a rough time for Belle Isle before the state takeover. And I remember the controversy surrounding it. But, you know, it was challenging. But there's been all these significant improvements now over the last 10 years with the main beneficiaries being really the residents of Detroit and the surrounding communities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole city was in such tough shape. I mean, the, 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 there was just no way the city could take care of any of its parks. And Belle Isle really needs to be the jewel in the crown. The, the, it's the park that, that everyone is beloved by everybody. And there have been so many improvements in the last 10 years. I mean, the first thing was just getting those bathrooms open, cleaning it up. You know, the, the, the Michigan Department of Natural Resources has done a really good job of doing that. They brought in MDOT to improve the bridge and the roads. Um, a lot of things to just make the park better for everybody. Well, in addition to improving the amenities, uh, which was huge, yeah. um, they, also have t- they also took steps to make the park safer and to make folks feel safer, which is an entirely different thing. I know that there was some controversy about the Michigan State Police Department patrolling the island and and park rangers. Is that mostly in the rear view now? I think it is. I mean, there's always, you know, disagreements that happen from time to time, but the park is is safe. Um, uh, I think everybody knows, you know, the, the, you know, how to behave. Um, And uh, uh, I've certainly not seen any, uh, any incidents and not have heard of any in recent years. 
You know, Maude, it's, it's clear that Belle Isle holds a special place in the hearts of Detroiters. Uh, you get about 5 million visitors, I believe, annually. How do you balance, though, pre- preserving the parks, that natural beauty of Belle Isle and that historical significance, while you ensure that it remains accessible for all those people who want to come? Well, that's a challenge, isn't it? Uh, I mean, Belle Isle is, is, you know, 985 acres, so there's room for a lot of different things. So for families, there's the, the pavilions that for picnics there's and reunions, there's the beach. Um, a lot of people love to just go out and sit on Sunset Point. How many wedding pictures have been taken at the Scott Fountain? Uh, you know, many, many things for families to do. There's places to see, like the aquarium, which we run, the Belle Isle Conservancy. Um, and this year, the, the Anna Scripps Whitcomb Conservatory will be reopening probably late in the year. Uh, so that's another great thing to see. There's the Dawson Museum. There's the Nature Center, which was recently refurbished. So it's a great place for, for families. It's also a great place for nature lovers. I mean, this winter, I've seen people out on the inland lakes on Belle Isle skating. Um, I've seen cross-country skiers, bird watchers. Um, a lot of people are out there just to walk and run and enjoy the, 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 the natural environment. Uh, the DNR has been doing a lot of things to be able to restore habitat and get rid of invasive species, and they've done a particularly good job at restoring the flatwoods, which is one of the, the last uh, remaining uh, uh, original flatwoods in our, in our region, if not our state. Uh, so, and then there's the athletic fields. Uh, there's been a lot of improvements to those, and there's all kinds of sports uh, that, that happen there. There's a new handball court. So I think that there's a good balance of lots of different things for lots of different people. Well, I think that folks may not be aware that while we don't have a lot of oil and gas exploration in southeast Michigan, uh, where we have had it, which is in the upper part of the state's mitten, um, a lot of those oil and gas royalties go to work down here in places like Belle Isle for improvements through the Natural Resources Trust Fund. I also know that, you know, the Penske folks did a great job when they had the, the Grand Prix on Belle Isle also supporting uh, a lot of the uh, improvements there. With the exodus of, of the Grand Prix, is there a, uh, a need for additional funding and where will it come from? Well, first of all, the need for funding on Belle Isle is huge. I mean, there have been estimates um, back in, oh, around 2005, there was a master plan that was done. This was before the DNR became involved, and it estimated well north of $300 million that was needed to restore buildings and, and uh, uh, take care of grounds and so forth. Um, the, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's always a question of, of when you don't have enough money for everything, what are the things that you do? Uh, and uh, I think the DNR is really to be credited for doing a lot on the infrastructure of the island, things like taking care of electrical and pumps to take care of flooding issues, um, uh, just just uh, making sure that the, the, the park is operated well. I mean, a lot of that stuff isn't very sexy and isn't very visible, but it's really visible when it doesn't work. Well, we got about a minute left. Uh, what are What is the future of Belle Isle? What other priorities uh, are on tap for uh, Belle Isle? Well, one of the things I'm excited about is the DNR has done a multimodal mobility study, um, which was really uh, uh, wonderfully done looking at uh, pedestrians, cyclists, 
and and automobiles, you know, how they move around the island, where the pinch points are, what could be improved. And there's a number of great recommendations that will be put into place in the coming years. One of them is to add, uh, improve the bridge and the entry experience, make that easier for people. Um, another is to add new wayfinding signs so that you can find your way in the park and you know where to go. One of the things the DNR did that was listening to the public, uh, they had a day at the Dawson Museum that we at the Conservancy helped to coordinate last summer uh, that was to get public input on the mobility study. And one of the results of that was keeping the road that rings the island as a one-way road, but with the idea that the roads on the interior of the island would become two-way. So it becomes a lot easier to know which way you can drive. Well, Maud Lyon, Interim President uh, and CEO of the Belle Isle Conservancy, we thank you so much for being here and giving us an update on the great things that the Conservancy is doing to keep our jewel shining. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guy, I'm telling you, it, 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 it looks a, great. The transformation is just astonishing. It's amazing. It's amazing. From It's night and day. And the there. memories that have been made there in the last 10 years that otherwise would not have happened. And more to come. Yes. Looking forward to that. We're also looking forward to All Talk with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz next here on JR. We'll see you tomorrow at 6.